Amen. Hey, uh, how are y'all doing? How are you? How are you doing? That was, that was a question. Uh, well, great to see you all here. Great to see a lot of people who are here uh, new for the first time. Um, and, and man, you know, like one of the things that um, has been really just imp- on my heart recently about Thrive is that um, that when when God's people gather in community, stuff happens. Like I just can't tell you like how much I've seen like friends of mine, people around me grow as they've just like had other believers in their lives speaking truth um, and, and life into their lives. And that takes vulnerability. I mean, it's not always easy to kind of allow another person into your life and to actually share what's really going on in your life. Um, but man, like as I've seen it happen here at Thrive, it's been amazing. I mean, it's been amazing to see um, just people grow. Um, and so if you are here and, and you're somewhat new to Thrive, I hope you stick around. Because I think if you do, I think you'll find that, that, that this is a community of people that want to run after Jesus together. And, the, you know, I think a key word in that is the word together. Um, so that's part of what we get to do here at Thrive. Um, we're not a church. Um, we don't replace what happens on a Sunday morning. Um, but instead, we get to gather as a community of young adults who want to encourage each other in following Jesus. And that's part of what we're going to do tonight. Um, I have the honor of preaching on um, a passage of the Bible, um, which means that for the next probably 30 minutes, we just get to learn about God. Um, I was thinking today, there's a, there's a C.S. Lewis quote where he says um, that Christianity is either of infinite importance or it's of no importance. The only thing it can't be is of kind of moderate importance. Um, and if there really is a God, and if he really has come down to the person of Jesus, laid down his life on the cross um, so that he could have a relationship with us, then, then what we're going to look at tonight is of infinite importance. Um, I mean, this is really good stuff we get to look at tonight. This is like... Um, kind of some, some, some thick theology, but, but I think um, th- this kind of takes you to the very heart even of, of what the gospel, the good news about Jesus is all about. So um, let me just, I'm going to pray as I look at uh, this passage of scripture really quick, um, and then uh, we're just going to jump right in. Um, so Lord, I just pray that you would uh, get me out of the way, just take my words, um, and would you use them? Um, Father, I pray that if I say anything tonight that is not true or that is not of you, that it would just be um, left out or forgotten. Um, Lord, would you um, just help us grasp who you are. Um, God, help us to um, get more excited about you than anything else. Um, and would we seek your kingdom first, trusting that everything else will follow as we do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in a series on the book of Romans, uh, which is one of the most important books in the whole Bible. It lays out what the good news about Jesus is about. And uh, tonight, uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 9. Now, last week, um, we had um, David. You guys remember David? Come through, and David um, gave us an overview of, of these middle chapters of Romans, Romans 9 through 11. And um, these chapters are some of the most important chapters in the whole Bible because they um, basically kind of give you the, sort of the, the I don't know, the, the lens through which to interpret the rest of Scripture. And what we, we did last week was kind of get a 35,000 feet overview of those chapters. What we're going to do for the next uh, three weeks after this one is kind of go back and look at those chapters one by one and pick up on some of the details. Um, and you're probably wondering, uh, why would we do that? Uh, you know, David did a great job, and you're probably thinking, how can you improve on perfection? Um, and and, and you know, what am I going to say that's going to be better than what he said? And the answer is probably nothing. Um, but, but, but nevertheless, nevertheless, the, the reason that, that it's good to go back over, over what we looked at last week again is that they contain some really thorny issues. I mean, they, they kind of deserve a treatment on their own. And so uh, Romans 9 is one of those chapters. It's this phenomenally important chapter. 
uh, because it contains these amazing truths about who God is. So like, just to give you a sample of what we're going to see tonight, it talks about the goodness of God, the glory of God, and then I think maybe a key word tonight is the sovereignty of God. So like the word sovereignty refers to how God is in control of everything. God is in control of everything. And this passage is also going to touch on some really key questions as well. So, so some of those questions, uh, is God really good? Is God really in control? Like are all the little struggles and, and the, the details of my life, does he notice those things? Does he care about those things? Is he sovereign over those things? And then probably the most important question of all um, is, is, is this pretty big question. Do we choose God or does God choose us? Do we choose God or does God choose us? You know, like if I become a Christian, if I decide to put my faith in Jesus, is that because of something that I did or is it because of something that God did? And, and this passage is going to answer the question for us. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, for all, all you Bible students out there, um, you know, if you, if you really wanted to get technical, what this chapter is going to talk about is the, is the topic of predestination. Um, does God predestine people to heaven? Does God predestine people to hell? Do I really have the free will to choose? And, and, and this is such a hot button topic that we're actually classifying this tonight as one of our hot potatoes in Romans. As you know, uh, we've been going through this book, and every time we've come to like a, a topic that's culturally hot and hard to handle, like a hot potato, um, we've kind of taken it up and, and sort of coordinated it off separately. And, and tonight is another one of those hot potatoes. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at this subject of predestination out of Romans 9. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can, you can pray for me because even though um, this, I've been predestined to preach this message, it's still a hard message. Um, so you can just pray that I actually know what on earth I'm talking about up here and that you can actually understand what I'm, what I'm saying here. Um, so what I want to do tonight is I want to start out by reading to you um, basically the, the majority of this chapter. Uh, minus a couple of verses at the end that we're not going to take a look at tonight. And, and I would, again, I would really encourage you to actually have like a physical Bible. Um, it's really important to actually be able to kind of see what we're looking at. And so if you want to grab a Bible and you don't have one, I think Travis in the back has a big old stack that he's happy to pass out to anyone uh, who wants it. So, but I'm just going to jump right in and read Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 26. Romans 9. I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my bro brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and, one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So just by a show of hands, as I was reading that, I want you to just stick up a hand if anything in there kind of made you like react almost like viscerally, like, man, I don't get this, or man, I don't even know that I like what I'm reading. Anyone feeling brave enough to put up a hand? Okay, so there's some hands. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure that there are probably more hands than those that are raised, because, you know, it's, uh, you always got to wait for the, the, the brave people to go first, and then, you know, then uh, you, you can raise your hand too. But, but there, there's some tough stuff in this passage, and what I want to do to look at it is I want to break it down uh, and, and look at, first of all, uh, kind of what I'd call the head part of it and then move into the heart and the hands. And what I mean by that is we're going to start out by just sort of looking, okay, like, what does this say? What is this teaching? That's the, the kind of the, the, the head part. And then the heart and the hands is what I actually want to spend a good bit of time on tonight is showing you why this whole concept of predestination, it's not just a bunch of, of, of kind of abstract stuff. It really is incredibly personal and incredibly practical incredibly personal, incredibly practical. So that's what we're going to look at. And actually, I um, have a handout that I've prepared tonight that I, I hope would just be of help to anyone who wants to take some notes. Um, and so can I get maybe a couple of volunteers to pass this around? And then um, as we go here, uh, you'll be able to follow along with me. So the first thing that I want you to notice about chapter nine is that it follows chapter eight. There's some context here. And we looked at chapter 8 a few weeks ago, but, but just to kind of give you a little bit of context for, for what it is we're looking at, I want to go back and I want to read the last few verses of Romans chapter 8. So in Romans chapter 8, um, Paul actually uses this word predestined. So uh, this is Romans 8. He says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay. So, so did you notice that in these verses, he actually, he uses the word predestined. Like that word is a biblical word. It's, it's there in the Bible. And, and did you also notice that this whole word occurs in the context of a big passage that's about assurance. So what Paul's saying here is he, he, he's kind of speaking to a question. And the question is, 
you know, can, can a Christian lose their salvation? You know, can a Christian lose their salvation? And, and that's a complicated question. You know, there are a lot of different passages that, that you could go to in the Bible to answer that question. But, but I want to just look at the bottom line that Paul gives right here in what we read. He says in, in the very end here that he's convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the, the present, nor the future, nor any power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, and all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what he's saying here is that there's nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God. And, and, and by the way, that includes yourself. I mean, you are part of creation, if you didn't notice. Like, that, that means that, that not even you yourself can separate yourself from the love of God. So, in other words, the Bible says that if you are a true believer, and there's a whole lot that can go into kind of how you think about that, but the Bible says that if you are a true believer, you can't lose your salvation. And this is what Jesus says. Like in John 10, he says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So what that means is, is that like, there's this amazing security that Jesus wants every single person to have. That you know that you know that you know that you belong to him. And that no circumstance, no trial, no, no suffering, no doubt, no nothing can ever separate you from the love of God. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says that I will never leave you, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. If you look at that verse in Greek, five times it uses like, like you know, kind of the, the, the version of like not or never or nor. It's almost as though you were to say, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake you. Like that's how strong it is. And the reason I want to bring all of that up is because that is so critical to understanding why the subject of predestination is important. It all has to do with this this security, this assurance that the Bible says is for every single person who believes in Jesus. You know, like in John 3, 16, let me, let me just, I want you to tell me if I'm quoting this verse to you correctly, okay? So, so does that verse say, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have temporary life? I mean, can you imagine if that were the promise? What it says is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know, someone has said that, man, if we could lose our salvation, we would. <laughs> so, 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 so this is a big deal. And it all goes back to what I'm going to talk about tonight with the, this whole subject of predestination. I mean, that word just basically means decided beforehand. So, so what Paul is saying here is that if you are a true believer, God decided beforehand that you will be saved. He decided before you were born he decided before the foundation of the earth was laid. He decided that before you, you may have gone off and completely screwed up your life and, and, and kind of gotten to this point of thinking, man, you know, there's no way that God could ever rescue me. There's no way that God could ever love me again. I want to tell you tonight that, that God is a God of pursuit. And because it's his sovereign choice, he's a God who pursues even into all of the ways that we try to run away from him, all the ways we try to hide from him, and, and, and he will not rest until he has found all of those that he has chosen to be his own. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that means that, man, like if God decided before the foundations of the earth were laid that you belong to him, he's, he's not going to pull you into the lifeboat and then change his mind and push you back out again. 
So can't you see that like what we're talking about is, is, is actually really, really cool. I mean, that, that's kind of what predestination is getting at. But, but here's the thing. This obviously raises all kinds of questions. And Paul knows this. The big question that he, he knows it raises first and foremost is this. Someone might say, you know, but Paul, wait a minute. You know, if predestination is true, you know, if what you're saying is that, like, God's choice is, is, is kind of what brings, like, someone's security in their salvation, well, what about Israel? I mean, didn't God choose them? Weren't they secure through the promises of God? You know, how is it that now Israel has rejected Jesus? You know, they've fallen away from grace. I mean, wouldn't it seem like God didn't keep his promise to them? And if God didn't keep his promise to them, how can you know that he will keep his promise to you? Which is the reason why these chapters are so critical. The way that Paul answers these chapters, the way that he vindicates God's faithfulness in keeping his promises has everything to do with how he keeps his promises to us. And so that's sort of the big question that all of 9 through 11 is about. But there are a lot of other questions that you could ask about how predestination works. So, for example, you know, but, but you could ask, you know, man, like if it really is true that God predestines people, how, how, is it, how is it fair that God would choose some to be saved and not others? And you could ask that question. Or, you know, if God is the one who chooses, then, then where's my free will? You know, if I didn't choose God myself, well, then, does that, you know, that doesn't sound like a love relationship. How, how could that be? You know, that, that would just mean that I'm like a robot. All of these questions are what Paul takes up in Romans chapter 9. And what I want to do is I want to simply work through some of the, some of the, the principles, some of the, 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 the layers of the argument that he gives to help explain what this thing is all about. Uh, so so look, look with me here again at verses 6 through 13. And I'm, I'm actually going to read these to you one more time. Uh, 6 through 13, he says, it is not as though God's word had failed. So he's, you know, kind of saying, you know, look, you're, you're asking this big question, you know, what about Israel? Did God, like, drop his promise to them? And he says, no. Like, God's promise, God's word has not failed. And then he goes on to explain kind of what David was talking about last week, that not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And then he kind of works through some different examples of that. He says, you know, remember that story where there's Isaac and Ishmael and they're both sons of Abraham, but it's Isaac who's the one chosen. And then, you know, there's, there's Jacob and Esau. I mean, they were twins. They're born at the same time. And yet Jacob is the one who God chooses over Esau. And the point here is that in these verses, what Paul is saying is that God's choice, God's election is not based on our merit. It's not based on anything that we do. So, so you have already heard, you know, he's, he's, he's basically laid out here that, you know, it has nothing to do with physical descent. You know, like it's not that, you know, oh, I'm born Jewish and therefore I got like an inside scoop to salvation. Or, you know, man, I was born in a Christian family and I went to church my whole life and therefore like I'm okay. I don't need to like actually like know God myself or take my own faith seriously. I want to tell you tonight, there's no such thing as a coattails Christian. There's no such thing as a coattails Christian. Just because, you know, your, your parents we're, we're Christians or because, you know, your parents or grandparents were missionaries or, you know, I don't care what it is. There's no such thing as a coattails Christian. And, and, and that's kind of, you know, an analogous point to what Paul's saying here, that it's not a matter of physical descent. And then in verses 10 through 13, he says, it's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of what you do. You know, he says before 
either of Jacob or Esau had done anything good or bad, not based on what they did, but on him who calls, he was told the older will serve the younger. The reality is, is that man is always looking for something to do. You know, remember the story in the book of Acts where Paul and Silas are in prison and, and there's this guy there who's the, the jailer and, and he's worried that Paul and Silas have escaped. He's about to kill himself. And, and Paul is saying, no, don't, don't do that. We're all here. We haven't run away. And he gets down on his knees and he says, you know, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He thinks, man, like there's something I have to do. And it's all about what I can bring to the equation. But man, I, I, I want to tell you, the truth is that according to the gospel, there is nothing that we can do to merit salvation. There's nothing that you can do to make God look at you and say, man, I, I really like CJ. You know, he's just like, I mean, God really does like you, CJ. But, but you know, CJ, there's nothing that you yourself can do to make God, to, to change that. Like God can't love you any more than he already does. He didn't send Jesus to die on the cross so that he would love you. He already loved you, and that's why he sent Jesus to die on the cross. You know, there, there's nothing we can do. You, you, you've heard me say this before, but like it would be a little bit like trying to swim from here to Hawaii. You know, there might be some of you who are really uh, pretty terrible swimmers like me. You go a couple of yards and you drown. Some of us who are better swimmers go like maybe, you know, a couple dozen yards and then you drown. A few of us might be like Olympic level swimmers. You know, if Ryan Grady were here, I'd probably throw him into this, this group. And they could probably swim for like a couple of miles. And then, you know what would happen? They would drown. No one can save themselves by anything they do. And that's Paul's point here. God's choice is not based on our merit. It's not based on our merit. And you know, man, someone who knew that was a guy named Martin Luther. You know, Martin Luther, probably one of the most important figures in history. He's the guy who kind of accidentally starts the Reformation. And, 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 you know, he wasn't trying to start a revolution. He was just, a, he, he was a guy who really was like, man, Lord, like, I want to, I want to be a good Christian. You know, what do I got to do to do that? And he thought, well, you know, I'll become a monk. You know, that's what really holy people do. They go and they sell all their possessions and they, they, you know, they pray all the time. And man, maybe if I do that, maybe like I'll have rest for my guilty conscience. And so he does it. He gives away all his possessions. He like, you know, sleeps without a blanket on and is freezing cold. He wakes up at two in the morning every day. He almost, fa he fasts so much that he almost starves himself. And, and, and Luther said, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was me. If anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it, 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 was, it was I, it was me. But Luther had this moment where he, he was reading the Bible one day and he's reading the book of Romans and he realized, wait a minute, this book says that it's not like by my righteousness, it's by God's righteousness. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And it's because of what Jesus did on the cross that I can know God and, and have salvation. And that's why later on in his life, Luther said, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. And he also said, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. So do you see that what he's saying is, is that, that, that there's nothing in you it's not like God kind of dug around and, and sort of looked through your heart and said, oh, you know, man, there's some real gold here. The reality is all of our hearts, were it not for Jesus, would just be completely worthless, black, terrible. The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. So that's, his first, that's kind of the first layer of the argument. It's not based on our merit. And then in the next couple of verses, let me read you again verses 14 through 18. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So Paul knows that when he says this, it raises this question. And the question is, man, isn't, you know, isn't that unjust? Like, if there's nothing that I can do to bring to the table, I mean, doesn't that mean that, like, you know, God can pick any old person he wants? I mean, he can pick, like, the worst, most horrible sinner. You know, like, man, this might sound crazy to you, but do you know that, like, if Adolf Hitler had, like, given his life to Christ, like, in the seconds before he died, that he's a guy that we would see in heaven. Now, we don't, he didn't do that, as far as we know. But, but, but that's how crazy and radical the gift of God's grace is. And the question that would rise, uh, be, you know, kind of be raised here is, you know, God, how is that fair? How is that fair? You know, that, that seems as though, like, you're kind of denying justice. And, and without getting into all of it, you know, just know, we, we've talked about this, this whole book is basically one big demonstration about how God is just. He can be both the just and the justifier because of what Jesus did on the cross. But, but the key verse here is verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And what is mercy? You know, the, the word grace, that's a word that's thrown around a lot. And people say that grace means getting what you don't deserve, but mercy means not getting what you do deserve. Not getting what you do deserve. And the Bible says that all of us have gone astray, that there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks after God. And it reminds me, there was a song I used to sing in church, and it went like this. It said, I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. In other words, like if it were just left to us to work out our salvation on our own, we would never, ever find God. Even if like we had the greatest, like deepest longing for like, you know, something to fill the hole in our heart, you know, not even that, not even that would get us to God. But the Bible says that Ephesians chapter 2, because of God, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So in other words, unless God chose us, we would never have chosen him. It's all because of his mercy. So, so man, like, I'm actually pretty thankful that's true. I'm actually pretty thankful that's true because, you know, man, the, the, the older I get, and the more that I come to know, like, what's actually in the depths of my heart, I don't always like what I see. And man, like, I think the, 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 the older you get and, and, and the kind of the more honest you get with yourself, I think you'd realize the same thing. That, that you know, praise God that he didn't look around and, and root around in my heart and say, man, you know, I, I'm, I, I just, I see Michael, I see that one day he's going to grow up and he's going to, like, lead, thrive. And I, you know, I really want that guy on my team. He's really useful to me. You know, God didn't save you because you're useful to him. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need, any, he's God. And you're, you're, you're not qualified to take his place. You know, you, who, who are you to think that you can actually do anything for God at all? I mean, like, this is a little bit crude, but seriously, like, the, 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 the most that we can bring to God, it's like bring God like a great big pile of, like, elephant poop. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> seriously, we can't bring anything to God. So God's election isn't based on anything that we have done, which means that if you're a Christian here tonight, you're a trophy of God's grace. You're a trophy of God's grace. I mean, every single one of us should be asking ourselves, man, like, God, why on earth have you chosen me? <laughs> why on earth have you chosen to show this kind of mercy to me? 
I'm a sinner. Like, I know I don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve it. And, and, and you know, I, I just want to, I want to, before jumping onto this, this next point, I want to I just give you one, one quick little story um, of someone who really got what God's mercy was all about. Um, and I, and I want to share this, especially like if, if you're here and you're thinking, man, like, I just, I don't actually, I don't actually know that I can believe that God would show this kind of mercy to me. Listen to this story. This is a story about a guy who, um, I think about a hundred years ago or so, you know, he and his wife, uh, they were, they were Swedish and they decided we're going to go to South Africa or somewhere in Africa, I think it was. And they wanted to go and be missionaries and they wanted to try to take the gospel uh, to a people group in, in Africa that had never heard it before. And, uh, and this guy's name, his name is David Flood, and uh, he, he has all this, this passion. He's a young guy in his 20s, about our age. But what happens is he, he shows up, and the work proves like really, really dangerous and brutal. His wife winds up dying um, pretty soon after he arrives. Um, and, and there never was any spiritual breakthrough. The only thing that they got to witness was there was one young boy uh, from this, this tribe. And, and this young boy actually did come to know Jesus. But, but there was something in Flood that just broke. I mean, all of the hardship just kind of landed all on his head. And he realized, man, like, you know, I've come all this way. I've sacrificed all of this. And, and all I have to show for it is just this single kid. <laughs> so he, 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 he gets like such, he gets so down deep in a rut that he leaves Africa. He actually leaves behind his faith, abandons his faith, and he moves back to Sweden. Well, but what, what actually, what, happen, what happens here is that the, in the sovereignty of God, he has a, an, an infant daughter. His infant daughter is too, too young to actually travel with him, and so she winds up getting left with this other missionary couple, and one thing leads to another, and they have to leave, and, and she winds up getting raised in the United States. She becomes a Christian. And, and, and she had always wondered, you know, man, who, what, who actually were my parents? You know, what, what, what actually was it that they were doing in Africa? And she, and she finds out about what her parents did, about their missionary work, and she, she develops this deep desire to reconnect with her father. And so, so years, years, years go by. She finally manages to arrange this trip to Sweden. And she goes and she finds her dad. And by this point, David Flood is, is this 73-year-old man. He's living inside this squalid apartment. He's an alcoholic. He's surrounded by, by liquor bottles. He um, you know, had one broken marriage and I think a second broken marriage and is living with a mistress at the time. And David Flood's daughter comes to him and she tells him that God loves him. She tells him that even though he has walked away from God, God has not walked away from him. And then she tells him the story about the one boy that they got to lead to Jesus. And she explains to him that that boy went on to start a school in his village that wound up leading his entire tribe to Christ. And it brought about not just the conversion of that whole tribe to Christ, but he went on to be a significant Christian leader in Africa and hundreds and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives were touched through this one boy. And when David Flood heard about God's love for him and what God had done, even with the, the, the rubbish mistakes of his own life, he threw himself onto God's mercy and he, you know, little, little even knowing that he only had less than half of a year left to live. I mean, that is the mercy of God. And that is the basis for our salvation. But now here comes the hard part. The, the hard part here is in these next couple of verses. In verses 19 through 24, um, Paul kind of raises, you know, the, he, he kind of anticipates the, the, the big question. So, one of you will say to me, verse 19, 
Uh, why does God still blame us for who resists his will? So kind of the idea here is, well, now, wait a minute. Like, you know, if God is really sovereign, if it's really his choice and, and he's the one who's doing the, the, the choosing, well, then, man, like, aren't we just robots? Like, you know, if, if, if I'm not a Christian, well, then, you know, how can I, I mean, I guess I can't become a Christian. I guess, you know, too, too bad for me. I guess God can't blame me because, you know, I had no choice in the matter. And, and Paul goes on to answer the question, and he says, uh, says a couple of things. Uh, verse 20, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? he gives three things to think about in response to this, this, this objection. And the first one is in verse 20, and he basically tells you that like, we're not qualified to judge God. We're not qualified to judge God. It is true, he says, that God is sovereign and that he's the one who basically holds all the strings of the universe together. And for us to say that we have more knowledge, more wisdom, <laughs> more goodness than God is insanity, is insanity. And he, he basically kind of calls us on our bluff and says, like, if you are putting yourself in the position of trying to judge God, just like, think, think about who you are. Are you qualified to judge God? And as humbling as that is, it's the truth. I mean, all of us have just, you know, the tiniest, most limited perspective and for us to actually be able to claim that we know more than God, if you actually think about what it means for there to be a God, I mean, if, if that really is true, if he, if he really has, has made the whole universe, I mean, who, 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 you know, we're, we're like ants. You know, who, who are we to think that we actually know more than he does? It's been said, actually, that, that, that God would give you everything that you would have prayed for if you knew everything that he knows. Pretty interesting. You know, like sometimes like you pray for stuff and you think, oh man, like God, why didn't you give me that thing I prayed for? Well, you know, does that mean that God isn't good? Well, it means like, no, God just knows more than you do. <laughs> like the Bible says God works all things for good for those who love him. God sometimes just doesn't give us what we want because he knows if we actually got it, we wouldn't actually like what we get. So, so the first thing he says is we're not qualified to judge God. The second thing he says is that God has his purposes. God has his purposes. And so, so the, the, the first thing that that means is that, that God is God. He is sovereign. He has the right to order things according to his perfect plan even if that involves the destruction of the wicked. And, 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 and of course, you, could, you might look at that and say, well, man, how is that fair? The reality is, is that all of us were deserving of hell. I mean, if God chooses to rescue anybody, then that is like a completely unnecessary, completely like above and beyond, over-the-top demonstration of God's mercy. I mean, the fact that like there's anyone who knows God at all just shows like is a testimony to what an amazingly good God he is. And the crazy thing that Paul says about this passage is that God can take even human rebellion and he can work that into his beautiful plan. And this is why he mentions Pharaoh in here. So if you remember the story of Pharaoh in the Old Testament, he's the king of Egypt and he's the one who refuses to let the Israelites leave Egypt. And if you go back to that story, what you find out is that I believe it first says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Like Pharaoh hears this word from, from Moses that God wants him to let the people go. And Pharaoh says, no, you know, why should I listen to God? I'm in charge. 
And so it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then if you read on, you'll notice that God begins to harden Pharaoh's heart. It's almost as if God kind of gives his amen to what Pharaoh says. And the point is, is that regardless of, you know, whether it's Pharaoh, whether it's God, like the point, God has the right to harden Pharaoh, a Gentile, in order to save the Israelites, just as he now has the right to harden the Israelites to save the Gentiles. You kind of see the logic of the argument here. And I want to especially point out um, that one of, the, one of the questions this raises is, is um, you know, if you wanted to get theological, the issue of double predestination, if anyone knows what that is. And just kind of the idea, well, now, wait a minute, you know, if, you, if you're saying that, like, if someone ends up in heaven, it's only because God chose them, God predestines people to heaven, does that also mean that he predestines people to hell? I don't think it actually goes that far in this passage. And the closest to that it would come to that is in verse 22 there, where it says, um, you know, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And I just want to point out to anyone who kind of wants to go this deep with me tonight that, that the, the word prepared for destruction, it's actually a passive verb. So it doesn't actually say who does the preparing. It doesn't say um, that God is the one who does that. That's not what the passage teaches. You know, instead, you could very well read this as saying, well, you know, by our sin and rebellion, we're the ones who actually prepare ourselves for destruction. And God sovereignly is able to use even our bad choices and just like Pharaoh, work even rebels into his plan for his glory. So now you might be thinking, well, how is that logical? You know, like if God predestines people to heaven, you know, wouldn't that mean he has to predestine people to hell? That, you know, seems logical. Uh, and we're, and we're going to get to that whole thing. I just want to point out to you that not everything that is logical is necessarily theological. Um, and I would, I, would, I would say to you that this is an example in Scripture of where God puts two truths side by side each other and says, even though it seems to you like these things would have to contradict, uh, they don't necessarily. And, and I'll come to that in just a few minutes. And then the final thing here is that, uh, you know, in addition to, you know, we're not qualified to judge God, that God has his purposes. Other thing that Paul says is that God is good. God is good. And if God is good, then we have reason to trust him. And this is huge. I want you to notice what it is that God is using his sovereign choice to do in this passage. What God is using his sovereign choice in this passage to do is to save people. I mean, the whole context is how he has like, allowed the gospel to break out from Israel and to go to all the Gentiles. That's his sovereign choice. And that's just one of a zillion examples of the goodness of God being testified to in Scripture. I mean, if Jesus was God in the flesh, and if he laid down his life on the cross, you know, it says in Romans that, that God did not, he who did not spare his own son, you know, how will he also, along with him, not give us all things? I mean, if, <laughs> Jesus Christ is the final answer to whether or not God is good. And the final answer to whether or not God is good is in a million percent yes. If God was willing to, to lay down his own life for our sake, then even though we may not completely understand the entire purpose of God, even though from our limited perspective, we may be left wondering, why did you do this, God? Or why did you do that? Jesus is the final proof that we have a God who can be trusted even when he doesn't tell us everything we want to know. There's a verse in Deuteronomy that says, the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our descendants forever that we may obey all the words of this law. And what that tells me, anyway, is that there are certain things that God has revealed and that he has told us and there are certain things that he has left in the realm of mystery. And that I actually should expect, if God is God and I am not, that there would be things that, that I will not know this side of eternity. 
Does that make sense? So, have you followed kind of the, the layers of the argument here? Do you, you kind of see what Paul has, has given us so far to unpack this sticky question of how it is the, the, the election, that predestination works? No, no, no. What I want you to do is I want you to kind of hold that on one side of your brain. And now what I want to really quickly do is I want to put that together with another thing that he says. And you have to see both of these things to really get the whole picture of this passage. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to jump from this chapter. I'm just going to briefly look at some things in, in Romans 10 without reading the whole thing. Because what I, what I want to show you is in Romans 9, Paul does this crazy thing of teaching that God's sovereignty is true. And what our human brains want to say is, well, if God's sovereignty is true, then therefore I am just a robot. You know, there's no such thing as free will. There's no such thing as human responsibility. And Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. Romans chapter 10, human responsibility, human free will. All those things are real. And let me show you how he shows you that. So if you were to jump over to Romans 10, we're going to look at this next week. In Romans 10, Paul says that God is sovereign, but verses 8 through 13, we still must call on him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, like if you think to yourself, well, man, if God, you know, is the one who does the choosing, you know, I don't have to do anything. Paul says, no, you still have to call on the name of the Lord. Verses 14 through 17, God is sovereign, but we still are called to preach the gospel. You know, some people say, oh, well, you know, if God is the one who's elected everybody, well, then therefore, like, I just can stay at home, put up my feet, watch TV. There's no need to tell anyone about Jesus because all the people that God has chosen, they're going to get to heaven somehow. I don't need to go out and do anything. Paul says, no, how can they hear unless someone is sent to preach to them? And then finally, verses 18 through 21, God is sovereign, but we are still morally responsible. And this is where he says about Israel, you know, man, did Israel not hear? You know, of course they heard, like the gospel was preached to them. In other words, like God still holds them morally accountable for the fact that they rejected Jesus, just as he holds everyone accountable for the decisions that we make. Now, what this means here. This is, this is crazy. The, the, actually, both of these truths are true. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both true. Now, you might be thinking, okay, like, this is just nuts. You know, the Bible, you know, why am I reading this book? This thing is, you know, it doesn't even make any sense. I want to actually show you that this, you, you actually believe a lot more things like this than you might realize. So, so probably my favorite example of this is like the, the very fact that we have light in this room right now means that you, you actually probably are, are, are closer to agreeing with Paul on this than you realize. Because what scientists will tell you is that light behaves as both a wave and as a particle. Both as a wave and as a particle. Now, do we have any idea how that can be true? No. I see, a, I see a, an engineer back there shaking his head. Thank you, Andrew. That makes me feel good about myself. Uh, we, we don't know how that can be true. But we know it's true. Like, we verified this experimentally that it's true. So what that means is it seems like it's a contradiction, but actually it's not a contradiction. It's just an apparent contradiction. And I want to propose to you that when Paul sticks sovereignty in chapter 9 right next to human responsibility in chapter 10, it's the exact same thing. He says, I'm going to put these things right next to each other. And, and I, you know, I'm not going to necessarily be able to put them together for you to explain how they're both true. I'm just going to say that they are both true. Let me give you just a couple of illustrations of this. Now, this one um, is, is not necessarily um, going to answer all of your questions. It's, a, it's not like the perfect illustration, but think about it like this. You know, imagine that there's a, a king in his castle, and there's a bunch of people living out in the valley kind of below where the castle is. One day, the king looks out, and he sees that there's an enemy army that's going to come through. It's going to wipe out the whole village. 
And the king goes out and he says, you know, he, he sends his messengers and, and tries to get people to come into his castle. He says, you know, come quick. You know, the, 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 there's an army coming. If you don't come inside, you're going to die. And no one, no, no one accepts his offer. So the messengers come back. They tell the king. And the king says, okay, well, what I want you to do is I want you to go out and I just want you to force people to come in. So the messengers go out. They grab some people. They bring them in. Those people who come inside the castle are saved and then all the rest of them are swept away. And in that story, all could have been saved. None would be saved, but some shall be saved. All could, none would, some shall. Or, you know, another example. So, so you know, if you think about two railroad tracks, two railroad tracks have to always be running in parallel, and if they don't, the train falls off the track. Same thing here. So, so, Divine sovereignty is like one of those tracks. Human responsibility is like another one of those tracks. Now, those two things meet somewhere in eternity. You know, we don't know how that can be true because, you know, as engineers would tell you, two parallel lines can never touch. But somehow, they, they, somehow those tracks meet in eternity. But what happens is, you know, a lot of times in the body of Christ, what we'd like to do is, we, you know, if you're a Calvinist, you know, we like to emphasize just kind of the one side of that and just say, oh, it's all about God's sovereignty. You know, cage stage Calvinism. Or, you know, Arminianism says, oh, it's all about human responsibility, all about human free will. You know, it's got to be a real relationship. You can't be a robot, blah, blah, blah. Problem is, if you emphasize just one of those truths over another, if you just preach one of those truths over another, then the train falls off the track. Like, they're actually meant to be held in biblical tension. See how that works? And uh, let me just, but, you know, before kind of moving on really quick to just some, some, some heart and hand, some practical personal stuff, I want to just prove to you that this is all over the Bible. So uh, remember this from Genesis chapter 50, where uh, Joseph tells his brothers, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. So he's saying like the, 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 the human will here was for this to harm me, but God was working through those very human choices in order to work it for his plan. Or uh, another verse here, this is Proverbs 16 verse 1. To man belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the reply of the tongue. Or a Proverbs 16, verse 9, in his heart a man plants his course, but the Lord determines the steps. So these two tracks are found all throughout Scripture. And what this means, by the way, is that when all is said and done, those who end up in heaven have no one to think but God. He is the one who brings about our salvation 100%. There's nothing that we can add to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. But on the other hand, those who end up in hell will have no one to think but themselves. Those who end up in heaven will have no one to think but God. Those who end up in hell will have no one to think but themselves. And with that as a segue, what I want to do just to close here, I want to just really quickly show you that this is a whole lot more than just a whole bunch of abstract truth. This is like super personal, super practical. Let me just show you three ways in which that's true. First thing is, if you believe in this, then, oh my goodness, it, it'll give you a peace and a joy that will conquer circumstances. It'll give you a peace and a joy that'll conquer circumstances. Think about this. You know, imagine that divine sovereignty, you know, imagine that predestination, imagine that it doesn't exist. You know, if that were true, you wouldn't want to get out of bed in the morning because, you know, the fate of the universe would be on your shoulders. You know, so like this, you know, like uh, I'm sure there have been all kinds of, um, you know, TV shows and books and movies uh, that kind of have this, this plot device. But it's called the butterfly effect. You know, like the butterfly flaps its wings, you know, halfway around the world. And then on the other side of the globe, you know, like an earthquake happens. <laughs> and, you know, kind of the idea is like 
all things are interconnected in this impossibly intricate network of cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. And it's so complicated, like we have no idea how, you know, how one thing leads to another, but it does. Now think about this. If there really is no God who is sovereignly orchestrating all of those things together, then oh my goodness, just think of the existential weight that is on your shoulders every single morning. I mean, like a choice that you make could cost the next nuclear holocaust. Seriously. But, but if all things do work together for good, then what that means is that all you have to do is just try your best and then relax. Because God's the one who's got it. <laughs> He's the one who's in sovereign control over everything. And, I, and I'm, I'm going to tell you a story that I shared a few weeks ago, just because it makes fun of me, and I'm sure you want to hear it again. Um, but when I chose a college, this is you know, one of the, the, the most difficult decisions I had to make. I was choosing between college on the West Coast, college on the East Coast. Problem was, I had a crush on a girl. And I really wanted to follow this girl off to this college, uh, the one on the West Coast. But I felt like God wanted me to go to the college on the East Coast. And I spent months like, trying to wrestle through this. And, and, and eventually, I, I got to this point where I was just utterly confused. I was like, okay, Lord, kind of like surrender the girl to you. you know, put it on the altar. But Lord, you know, what about, you know, what about pride? Like, I, I, the only reason I think I, I'm kind of even interested in this college on the East Coast in the first place is that it's a really good school, and I want people to think that I'm this really smart guy. And, you know, like, are my motives bad? You know, what's, what's actually going on here? I was completely, totally, utterly confused. One day, I get down on my face. I'm in the Chapel Hill Sanctuary. I say, God, I don't care if I ever see this girl again. I just want to go where you want me to go. And, and, you know, I got my inner Pentecostal on, and I thought I might have heard God say, okay, I want you to go to the school on the West Coast. Okay, you, 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 can, you can follow the girl. And I did. Went to Whitworth. Now, now here's the thing. Here's the thing. I still don't know, like, what on earth was actually happening there. Like, I still don't know if I actually am really a Pentecostal or not. Like, I actually really did hear God say something there. I, you know, I don't know if I made the right choice or the wrong choice. Like, I still to this day look back on that, and I'm confused. Raise your hand if you can relate to my story. Good, okay. I'm, I'm among equals. Here's the thing. I don't care. I don't care. I mean, I, I, I do care. I'm not trying to say that you, obedience isn't important. That's not my point. But I'm just saying, like, by the grace of God, I know that his forgiveness is over my life. And I know that even if I did screw up, like, God is able to take even my mistakes and work them together for good. It's his sovereignty. And very, very infrequently do we ever even see how all the pieces go together. But it's a little bit like this. You know, there's a story told about a guy who went to visit India and saw a father and a son who are, who are weavers. And the way that it works is that the father is the one with the design in his head. He sits at, at the loom, he takes each individual thread, and he weaves it together into this beautiful design. Meanwhile, his son is sitting at his feet, and all he does is he takes the, 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 the shuttle where the threads are attached, and he just moves that shuttle back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. He's not even able to see the design the father is designing. All he does is he's faithful to the task that has been given to him. But when all is said and done, that pattern in the father's mind is more beautiful than he could have ever imagined. And that's a little bit like what it's like for us. And the reason that I say this gives you a peace and a joy is that if it really is true, that this all doesn't ride on you and your sovereignty, but on God's sovereignty, that'll set you free. Second thing it'll give you, It'll give you an assurance and a freedom that conquers doubt. Let me ask you a question. How do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that you're a Christian? Is it because you went to summer camp and you had a really emotional moment and you prayed the sinner's prayer? 
You know, is it because you faithfully attend church? Is it because you think you see some fruit in your life? You know, man, I, if, if you've ever, like, experienced spiritual depression before, then you probably know that all of those things that you might look to, all of those things can, can basically, you, you can doubt all of them. So the question is, how can you actually have an assurance that you're really secure in Christ? The thing is, if you look at your own character, if you look at your own qualities, it's a little bit like taking an anchor and throwing it inside the hold of a ship. And that ship is going to be rocked back and forth by the waves. But, but, but look, if, if predestination is true, then God doesn't love you because of anything in you. He loves you because before the foundation of the earth was laid, for, for reasons too wonderful to understand, he just out of love said, I choose you. I love you. And what that means is if you have a bad day, if you doubt your salvation, if you screw up and get in a rut, God never loved you because of anything you did in the first place. There are a few people here tonight. Actually, it's becoming more and more uh, people here tonight who are married. Uh, so, so I want you to raise a hand if you're married tonight. Uh, so I, Whitney, oh my gosh. Uh, so we got Jason, Michelle, and uh, Grace and Devontae back there. We've got Andrew, actually, who'll be getting married pretty soon here. Uh, Hunter and Jill, who are coming back from their honeymoon. So, so married people, listen up. Uh, you know, one day, let's say that your spouse comes to you and says, you know, hey, why do you, why do you love me? Now, now, if you respond to them and say, well, you know, you are just way more handsome or beautiful than all the other people. And if you say that, well, you are way smarter than all the other people, you know what they're going to do? They're going to freak out. And they're going to freak out because what happens if they like, you know, well, okay, I'll tell you what will happen. What happens is you get old, and when you get old, you get fat. When you get fat, you get tired. When you get tired, you kind of lose your wits. You know, like by, the, by age 60, none of that stuff will work. Sorry to break it to you. If you define your love for someone on the basis of any other identity factor, it'll totally crush them. But that is not what God's love is like. God doesn't look for any other identity factor and say, that's why I love you. He loves you because he loves you. And if your spouse ever asks you that, if your significant other ever asks you that, that's what you should say. You should say, man, you know, I love you just because I love you. There's a security in that. There's an assurance and a freedom in that. And then finally, it'll give you a humility and a grace that conquers competition. And this is one you may not have thought of, but let me, let, me, let me put it to you like this. You know, if you are a Christian and you feel like, man, okay, like God has like taught me the truth of his word. Why do you know any of those things? I mean, the only reason you know any of those things is because God in his mercy opened up your eyes to see those, that truth. And what that means is, is that you have nothing to boast in. You have nothing to boast in over someone else. And this is true not just like in matters of faith. You know, this kind of, you know, not only is true like when it comes to, you know, let's say that you're in a, you're, you're going to a new church and, and you kind of feel like, man, there's like this critical spirit rising up in me because, man, they, you know, they don't do things in the right way or, or you know, the, the preaching isn't good enough or blah, blah, you know, whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, you know, let's say that you might actually know some things uh, that the, and, and another person in the body of Christ might not know. You, you have no reason to boast in that over someone else because the only reason you have that is because God is gracious to you. And this, this same, this, you know, oh my goodness, if our country realized this, then, then we wouldn't be such a fractured, divided nation like we are now. You know, let's say that you really think the Republicans are right on, on whatever the issue is. And, and, you know, for the sake of the argument, let's just say that they are. Or, you know, let's just say that you really think the Democrats are right on this particular issue. And let's just say for the sake of the argument, they are. Well, now let's say that you get in an argument with someone who completely disagrees with you. And, you know, it's a good thing this never actually happens in, in uh, 
in America these days. But, but you know what? Like, if you actually believe in predestination, then, then you're going to have a humility in talking to that other person. You're going to have a graciousness toward that other person. Because if you are right, then, it's, you know, it's not because you're smart. It's not because you're better. It's not because they're a bad guy, necessarily. It's just because God is good. God is gracious. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you have not received? And that's one of the most important questions in the entire Bible. So, that's all I got. Uh, is this, this, this good? This helpful? Good. Okay. Well, we're going to go to small groups now. And uh, uh, I'm going to just pray for us, and then we're going to launch into that. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for the, your word. Um, and just thank you, Father, that you're a God of mercy and a God of grace. Um, and that you actually um, have not only given us what we don't deserve, but you've um, not given us what we do deserve. Um, just help us be thankful tonight um, as we think about um, what we've... I've been looking at in scripture, in Jesus' name, amen.